You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. More assessments of the Solorigate affair with a side trip to Pearl Harbor. Shareholders opened a class action suit against SolarWinds, but no signs of an enforcement action for speculated insider trading. Emissary Panda seems to be working an APT side hustle. Kevin McGee has insights from the Microsoft Digital Defense Report. Our guest is Jason Passwaters from Intel 471 with a look at the growing range of ransomware-as-a-service offerings. And toing and froing on Chinese telecoms at the New York Stock Exchange. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, January 5th, 2021. Qualys offers a look at the back door installed in the Solorigate cyber espionage operation. They draw particular attention to the malware's evasiveness and use of domain generation algorithms. Their concluding assessment is about as gloomy as might be expected. Quote, In the end, we can conclude that the techniques which the attackers have used in this breach are very sophisticated. Supply chain compromise, data encoding, impaired defenses, and dynamic resolution, to name a few— Instead of doing major damage to the infected system, the attackers have focused on staying unnoticed from security products. In the coming days, we can expect to see widespread use of similar attacks. End quote. A ZDNet op-ed throws its hands up and declares the SolarWind software supply chain cyber espionage campaign to be worse than imagined. Assessing just how bad it is would require more understanding of the incident and its effects than is now publicly at least available, but consensus remains that it's pretty bad. IronNet offers a set of expert takes on why this form of cyber espionage, more than an ordinary data breach, has the potential to serve as preparation for more serious attacks later. A lot of people continue to call this a cyber Pearl Harbor or a cyber 9-11, but these metaphors still seem wayward. Thousands were killed at Pearl Harbor and on 9-11, but as far as anyone knows, there have been no physical casualties attributable to the solar winds hack, so it's probably best to reserve the Pearl Harbor talk until, heaven forfend, people are actually killed or injured on a large scale by a cyber attack. So why have intelligent observers been willing to talk about a cyber Pearl Harbor? In truth, this campaign is more worrisome than ordinary collection. The threat actors corrupted a software supply chain and quietly established persistent backdoors in organizations that use that supply chain. This makes it possible, perhaps even likely, that the effort amounts to battle space preparation, 
the staging in cyberspace of capabilities that could be deployed in attacks having widespread effect, including kinetic effects. So it amounts to more than just knowing that USS Pennsylvania was in dry dock and that USS West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arizona, California, Maryland, Tennessee, and Nevada were at their moorings on Battleship Row. But it's far less than the appearance over Oahu of Cates and Vowles from the First Air Fleet. Not yet a cyber Pearl Harbor, but it's not just collection as usual, either. SolarWinds shareholders have filed a class action suit against the company, whose Orion software has been at the center of the eponymous cyber espionage incident. The plaintiffs allege, Fox Business reports, that the company misrepresented and failed to disclose information about the incident, and this amounted to failing its duty to disseminate accurate and truthful information. The harm is alleged to be, first, reputational, as both the company and its shareholders look bad, and second, financial, as the suppression of bad news is alleged to have artificially inflated the company's stock. It was bound to come crashing back to earth once the air was out of the balloon. The plaintiffs also allege that SolarWinds executives had actual knowledge of the material omissions and or the falsity of the material statements, and that worse yet, they intended to deceive plaintiff and the other members of the class or, in the alternative, acted with reckless disregard for the truth when they failed to ascertain and disclose the true facts in the statements made by them or other SolarWinds personnel to members of the investing public. They're not asking for a specified amount, but rather for reasonable costs and expenses incurred, like spending on legal counsel and various experts, as well as whatever additional relief the court should judge appropriate. Solar Winds hasn't, as far as we've seen, commented directly on the lawsuit, but its representatives are making the right pacifying noises about working with law enforcement and intelligence agencies to get to the bottom of the incident, and about doing everything it can to identify, remediate, and mitigate this sort of risk, including its effects on third parties. At the close of trading yesterday, SolarWinds shares were priced at $14.53, a 34% drop-off since the incident came to light. It's worth noting that the class-action lawsuit against SolarWinds isn't about suspicion that company insiders traded to their advantage on non-public information. The plaintiffs assert that they were misled, that the company's valuation was artificially inflated, and that, had they had an accurate picture of the business, they wouldn't have bought the stock. Simply Wall Street observed back on November 19th, well before the news of the cyber espionage came to public attention, that SolarWinds insiders had for some time been selling rather than buying shares. That's not at all criminal or even unseemly, but it's a data point outside investors find interesting. But one large sale in December did raise retrospective suspicions. Silver Lake and Tama Bravo on December 7th sold some $315 million of SolarWinds stock to the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board. FireEye disclosed an incursion on December 8th, and SolarWinds disclosed on December 14th that the company had been apprised of the incident. This raised eyebrows, as Axios reported on December 18th, that some investors may have traded on non-public knowledge of the problem. SolarWinds denied this and was publicly backed by the CPPIB, so that story hasn't shown legs, at least not in the present lawsuit. Chinese threat actors may be involved in an APT side hustle, 
Researchers at Profero and Security Joes say they found Emissary Panda, the Chinese state-run threat group also known as APT-27, conducting ransomware attacks. Their attribution is based on code similarities and TTPs, but they caution that all such attribution carries an inevitable degree of uncertainty. Most ransomware strains have by now evolved information-stealing capabilities, so the ongoing campaigns may represent a twofer, self-funding intelligence collection. The principal objective is intelligence collection, with any ransom representing so much gravy, perhaps to fund the operation or perhaps as an incentive to the operators running the campaign. The New York Stock Exchange's on-again, off-again delisting of three major Chinese telecommunications companies in response to U.S. sanctions has roiled the market for China Mobile, China Telecom, and China Unicom shares. The Wall Street Journal reports that share prices fell between 3 and 6 percent in trading yesterday after news broke that the New York Stock Exchange would delist the three companies in compliance with a U.S. executive order blocking, on security grounds, Americans from investing in them. But late yesterday evening, the exchange said it had reconsidered and, after a consultation with various regulatory authorities, would continue to list the company's shares. CNBC speculates that the NYSE is counting on the Biden administration to take a more ironic approach to Sino-American relations and, of course, the security implications of those regulations. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. 
Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. The ransomware criminal marketplace continues to expand its offerings, and it's noteworthy that ransomware as a service is a growing trend, providing the opportunity to do online crime to those who may not have the technical know-how to roll their own. The team at threat intelligence firm Intel 471 have been tracking the evolution of this trend. Jason Passwaters is chief operating officer and co-founder of Intel 471. Yeah, I think it just goes back to, you know, the, the days of Zeus and the kind of professionalization or the kind of productization, if you will, um, in the malware space. And, you know, as, as folks made uh, more and more money, they saw the, the kind of, you know, the ROI there. Um, and they've really kind of defined and matured a business model around it. And that's what you see today is is a business model at play that has, you know, resili- resiliency built in. It's got, you know, all kinds of stuff like support, everything you see in a, in a typical business, but obviously um, doing much more nefarious things. Well, let's walk through that business model together. I mean, suppose I'm someone who uh, has my site set on sending some ransomware out into the world, but I don't have the technical skills to do it. Where do I begin? Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, you hear deep and dark web um, often. Um, I don't really see it as deep and dark. Um, it's a very well-organized marketplace, and it is really organized in, in a kind of a product services and goods model, and then you have consumers, obviously. So first place you would look is, you know, in the marketplace. It's not every uh, low-level threat actor can get involved into a ransomware affiliate right away. But they might start with, you know, doing kind of low-level, you know, hacks or selling of accesses into different organizations or companies. And that might be their pivot point into the, uh, the ransomware-as-a-service uh, space. And who are some of the big players here that you're tracking in this space? Yeah, so there's a lot of things popping up. Um, we have a model for pretty much everything in the marketplace. Like I said, it's broken down into products, services, and goods. So we have this model, a tiered kind of setup where if we're looking at a specific service or a specific product or some specialty or focus area in the marketplace, we break it down into tier one, two, and three. You know, the big players are going to be, you know, your Gregor, your Doppelgamer, um, Netwalker, uh, Revil, as well as uh, the Ryuk and Conti side. So do you suspect that it's certainly in the short term, I suppose, that, that this model is here to stay? I do. I do. I think um, the criminals, you know, have the ability to change faster oftentimes. But, you know, that I believe is where the intel, uh, the threat intel industry can kind of, you know, play a, a large role into keeping abreast of what's going on, keeping up with the adversary, and then constantly making sure that their their business is informed um, so they can make decisions to, to keep pace. That's Jason Passwaters from Intel 471. (music) 
And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Kevin McGee. He's the Chief Security and Compliance Officer at Microsoft Canada. Kevin, it's great to have you back. Um, I want to touch today on a report that you all recently put out. This is the Microsoft Digital Defense Report. Uh, first of all, let's start with some high-level stuff here. What prompted the creation of this report? I think really the, the new reports are a reimagining of the Microsoft Security Intelligence Report called SIR that a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with because we've been publishing it since 2005. And the SIR report was really operationally focused. And this new iteration will be more focused on sort of strategic threat intelligence, you know, providing greater contributions across the company. Uh, we have uh, 77 uh, countries represented. So a truly global perspective uh, and providing you know, strategic threat intel that leaders really need to make better informed decisions. Well, let's go through it together. I mean, what are some of the things that caught your eye? Well, I think just from a high level, you know, regardless of what company you work for in the industry, we're all defenders and we're all part of a larger community with a shared mission. And, you know, as defenders, we're, we're better when we have a more complete view of the evolving techniques of the threat actor. So that's what we're really trying to provide uh, in this report. And we've broken it into three areas uh, that we found were most relevant uh, to decision makers, and that's cybercrime, nation state. Uh, threats, the current remote workforce, and then we include also some actionable uh, learnings that we've uh, taken from the report. So not only can you read the report as a decision maker, there's real concrete things you can do to improve your security posture um, included in the report as well. Well, let's go through each of those categories uh, together. Can you give us some highlights from each section? Yeah, I think in, in the cybercrime, the, the things that really jumped out at me that I like to uh, dis discuss with uh, non-technical people, uh, either policymakers or business leaders, is we're moving away from a, an infrastructure-focused attacks to identity and applications. That's really what we need to be protecting now. We're also seeing cyber criminals follow the issues of the day, so we can literally map you know, things that are happening in the news headlines to evolving tactics and how threat actors are, are changing how they um, they perceive attacks and how they administer attacks. And then finally, there's a human element that we're starting to see introduced into attacks now that's really changing uh, how we uh, defend and how we need to think about attacks. So we don't think about a riot attack anymore. We're very focused on this sort of media-driven narrative of the attack that, that names it von, via the tool. And we're seeing a, a switch to more of a human-operated cyber attacks and cyber crime, where at each point in the attack, uh, a decision is made on how best to proceed next. So they're getting much more sophisticated. They're using multiple tools. And the, the best example I really use to think about this differently is, you know, we've for a long time focused on deflecting the arrows. And, and now we have to start thinking about the archer, which is hmm. the threat actor and how we can uh, position our security posture and make better decisions based on the threat actors most likely to attack us rather than the actual tools they're using. Hmm. Now, that's a, that's a really interesting analogy. What are you tracking on the nation state trends? Um, many of the uh, the trends really are, are attractive, similar with uh, with other um, uh, organizations out there that are doing uh, research work. But uh, we're seeing a lot of overlap now. I think that's what our report really is, um, is the message we're trying to land in, that uh, uh, nation states are adopting a lot of the tactics that cyber criminals are using. And cyber criminals are actually evolving to uh, the level where they're mounting attacks at um, at the, uh, the size and complexity of nation state actors. So you need to really start thinking about, again, um, not the, the tool that's going to attack you, 
or preparing for um, defense posture that that is on the ransomware of the day or whatnot as well. But really start to think with your business or your organization. You know, who are those threat actors like most likely to attack me, and and how are they interacting? Um, you know, with cyber criminal ecosystems that are. Uh, providing them with the tools or with nation states where they're emulating those type of attacks um, to evolve how they're they're really mounting their attacks on organizations. And then what were some of the other uh, bits of information that you gathered here? What were some of the other highlights? So I think, uh, again, we're seeing this this um, attacks where cyber criminals are actively making decisions as they go. They're controlling each step of the attack based on the configurations and defenses they encounter in the network. So they'll do quite a bit of reconnaissance. They maybe use a, a open source tool like maybe cats to uh, harvest credentials. Then based on uh, the reconnaissance, they, they may use a different payload uh, for ransomware or whatnot or a different tactic once they're in your network uh, to to maximize their leverage, to maximize their their take, or to maximize their political goal, whatever they're really attempting to do. So we're seeing uh, attackers persist longer in the um, in your environment, really to to gain that understanding, to conduct reconnaissance, so that they can make the best decisions to achieve their outcomes. All right. Well, the report is the Microsoft Digital Defense Report. Kevin McGee, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed when you care enough to give the very best. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Errol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Falecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.